We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Episode 218 of the Bowery Boys. West Side Story. The making of Lincoln Center. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Today we're headed to the center of high culture in New York City, a place where the greatest artists in the world meet in venues that were designed by the greatest architects of the 20th century. Our destination today is Lincoln Center. You know, Greg, today we're actually going to be telling multiple dramatic stories at the same time. It's a little bit of musical experimentation on the show. But of course, we're better to experiment than with Lincoln Center, because we're going to be telling the story of these top you know, performing arts institutions uh, that came together for the first time in the 1960s, but in a surprising twist, a sort of story within a story, we're also going to be tackling the creation of a Broadway musical and later its film version that shook the country as it tackled the subject of teenage delinquents through dance. This was, of course, the musical West Side Story. Believe it or not, these stories are actually related. Our story today is going to focus on the formation of Lincoln Center, the how, how was it built, and why did these institutions all come together in this one particular place? But also the film, you know, the film and Lincoln Center are linked together in ways that are both musical and also quite concrete. And it all meets on a surprising stage, a forgotten neighborhood just north of Columbus Circle. It's a story of post-war New York in a city that was experiencing shifts in demographics and undergoing, you know, massive urban renewal projects, which means, yes, today we will be taking Robert Moses to the opera. So, ladies and gentlemen, take your seats. Or put on your dance shoes. As we explore West Side Story and the making of Lincoln Center. So that was a little piece from the New York Philharmonic there to whet your appetite for this show. That was, in fact, Leonard Bernstein conducting the New York Philharmonic in Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf in 1960. So we're talking about a great campus that 
teams with great performances. So mm-hmm. we're going to shape this show a little bit as though it were a great performance itself. Introducing the That's char- very optimistic of us. <laughs> <laughs> Introducing the characters mm-hmm. and then the setting. Okay. So Tom, please situate us. Well, we are talking about Lincoln Center, or the Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, which is a performing arts complex on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, most of which is located between 62nd Street and 66th Street, and between Columbus and Amsterdam Avenues, uh, these blocks just west of Broadway. That's the location of Lincoln Center. What mm-hmm. are What is Lincoln Center? What are its objectives? Well, the, this campus includes some of the heaviest hitters in the city's performing arts scenes. These include such institutions as the New York Philharmonic, the Metropolitan Opera, the New York City Ballet, the Juilliard School, the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center, the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts. And that's just the beginning. There are several other institutions we haven't mentioned here. So the, the highest forms of music happening in all of these institutions collected here right. on, in the campus of Lincoln Center, pretty much every form of music except, of course, rock music, although they do have they outdoor, have outdoor, yeah, they have outdoor yeah. performances. And, yeah, they, they have outdoor rock concerts mm-hmm. in their own way, <laughs> in, in their own non-threatening way. But today's story could quickly, obviously, spiral out of control because... You know, are we going to be telling the story of each of these institutions or of the campus, of the of the building? That's a lot to cover. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Philharmonic alone has over 200 years of history. And we'll be tackling basically parts of all of these stories today and adding in the history of a Broadway musical. So who are the major players here? Why don't you go down the list and give us a, okay. give us a brief introduction? Well, we started with the Philharmonic which is the oldest orchestra in the United States and one of the oldest in the world. This institution was founded in 1842 as the Philharmonic Society of New York, and the first conductor was Irelli Corelli Hill. Say that ten times fast, Greg. (laughs) Irelli Corelli Hill. (laughs) Their first performance was a three-hour smorgasbord that included Beethoven and included opera and chamber music and it was performed on December 7th 1842 so hitting the anniversary here in the Apollo rooms which were down at 408 Broadway which is just south of Canal Street between Canal and uh, Walker Street on the east side so were they were they the only game in town here if you wanted to hear some symphonic orchestral sounds well they were the most prominent at this time but there was a bit of drama in the 1870s when a conductor for the Philharmonic Society named Leopold Damrosch flopped when he tried conducting for the Philharmonic Society. So he headed off to create his own group, the competing group, the Symphony Society of New York. So the Symphony Society and the Philharmonic Society would be the the two leading groups and they would compete with each other for decades. And for most of New York City's history, they would have two symphonic organizations. Now they performed in various spaces around town, but by the late 19th century, the city obviously, in so many ways, was experiencing, you know, this huge increase in population and size and scope and money and wealth, which we've talked about in basically every show we've recorded. (laughs) And this growing city needed a new home, something respectable for these symphonic organizations. The big break happened in 1891 
when the city finally got the concert hall that it deserved, called Music Hall, which would be renamed for its chief benefactor, Andrew Carnegie, just two years later in 1893. And Carnegie Hall would become the home base for both the Symphony Society of New York and the Philharmonic Society of New York. And we have a whole show on the history of Carnegie Hall, but essentially during this period, by the beginning of the 20th century, mm-hmm. it was like your one-stop shopping for orchestra music, and of course a lot of other entertainment went through there as well. And the Philharmonic would remain here through legendary conductors, including Anton Seidel, Gustav Mahler, Igor Stravinsky, Arturo Toscanini, and during this time it would actually merge with some of its competitors, including the National Symphony Orchestra in 1921, City Symphony Orchestra in 1923, and then finally it did merge in 1928 with its old competitor, the Symphony Society. So essentially, by the 1930s, the Philharmonic, Mm -hmm. which had now absorbed all these other orchestras, had its home at Carnegie Hall. And it would remain here. Toscanini would take over the baton in 1929. Several others would follow. There'd be great innovations like radio broadcasting and then later in the in the 50s, TV broadcasting. And Leonard Bernstein would take over as the musical director in 1957. So that's where we are. It's, it's the late 1950s and Bernstein's the musical director of the New York Philharmonic based out of Carnegie Hall. Okay, so that is the Philharmonic. Yes. So let's pick another player here okay. in the Lincoln Center Roulette. The opera, the Metropolitan Opera. Yeah, actually, there's even more drama, uh, surprise, surprise, at the opera, which dates back to the 1880s. Not only, you know, was the city experiencing this explosive growth that I just mentioned, but there was this new class of super rich New Yorkers because of the new industries that were based out of New York. And many in the old society didn't like it one bit. All this new money in town, you know, just it it made things really difficult. I mean, Greg, if you were organizing a society ball, how would you even know who to invite? You know, there the, were new people yeah. arriving every day. Like the old Knickerbockers or the new Vanderbilts. Right. Uh, you know, where is your Legendary center? Legendary Knickerbockers. Your, where is your center of wealth here? Where is your center of high society? So there's this tension between the old society and the new society. And this played out literally on stage at the opera house that existed earlier in the 19th century. These operas were performed at the Academy of Music, which had opened in 1854 down on 14th Street in Irving Place. Now, other opera houses had appeared around town, and we've talked about that, especially in the show on the Astor Place riots, which took place in 1849, you know, just a couple blocks south of the Academy of Music. But this Academy of Music was was where it was at, you know? It's where the established society enjoyed their opera, and they literally took all of the good boxes for themselves and weren't so happy about all the new rich people who wanted to get in and, and buy up boxes for their families and sort of, you know, even more so than enjoy opera, they were looking for a way to establish themselves in society. All of this makes it sound as if the music itself is quite secondary. Well, I'll leave it to others to talk about whether or not they really were interested in music. I think that there were people who were into the performances, but still, there was this other thing going on. So in a nutshell, you had the old society blocking new society from getting into the Academy of Music. So these new wealthy families headed off and built their own damn opera house, 
which opened in 1883 with a production of Faust. Where was this? This was just below the area of today's Times Square, which That's wasn't right, yeah. that didn't exist back then. Between 39th and 40th on Broadway on the west side of the street. But fairly close to the wealthy families of Fifth Avenue. And for the instance. theater district yeah. that, you know, mm-hmm. was creeping up from around Madison Square at this time. Yeah. And it was here at the old Met in this Italian Renaissance style brick building. Uh, with this lovely jewel box theater inside, that society flocked to see world-class opera stars, including some people we've talked about previously, like Enrico Caruso, when he came to New York. And it was a huge success. In fact, it was such a success that the Academy of Music closed down three years later. So it really was a center of high culture in the Gilded Age in New York City. Mm-hmm. But but I had read a lot of anecdotes that said that this was less than perfect, less than ideal for the art itself. If you imagine this as a place to be seen, then sure, it was wonderful. There are all these different boxes. But if you were, you know, wanting to put on a show with large scenery and, you know, quality actors, that it was not exactly the best venue for that. Well, it had definite issues in terms of space. There was very little backstage, no real wing space to speak of. They were forced to store sets actually outside on 39th Street and 40th Street. Which was not ideal, especially, (laughs) you know, I don't know, in the middle of the winter or during a rainstorm. Well, it looked positively absurd to see these huge sets, you know, on the street as you're walking by. But this would later inform the construction of the new Metropolitan Opera, which we'll talk about later, this lack of backstage space. Right. In its defense, however, it did have good acoustics and it sat about 3,700 people. So it was a very large space. By the 1930s, however, and during the Depression, finances grew quite tight, but they knew that they needed to have a new home. So by the 1930s, the Metropolitan Opera is still housed in this less-than-perfect space here right below Times Square. And there had been talk of moving it to Rockefeller's new development that was happening across town. They were going to make a new dedicated opera house. But the finances fell through on that, which led to the creation of Radio City Music Hall instead. And Rockefeller Center, yes. And Rockefeller Center. And the the opera just stayed here, stayed put into the 1950s mm-hmm. at 39th and Broadway. All right. What about dance? Well, this story is a bit shorter because the New York City Ballet was founded in 1948 as City Ballet by the artistic impresario Lincoln Kirstein and celebrated Russian-born choreographer and dance sensation George Balanchine, along with Jerome Robbins as a founding choreographer. Now, as with opera and with symphonic music, much of it, even into the early 20th century, is still coming from Europe. So is this also where the uh, the idea for a dance company came from, right? Right. Balanchine came from Europe, and American ballet enthusiasts had expressed a lot of concern because there was really no good training for ballet in the States and not really a great ballet company either. So... They looked abroad, they looked to Paris, where Balanchine had been the very successful director of the Ballet Russe, and they convinced him to come to New York and to establish a New York-based ballet. And this was in the 1930s. But in order to do that, he realized that any good ballet company needed to be trained as well. They 
The problem was that that American ballerinas were actually going off to Europe for their training. So well, they, yeah, there was no place for them to perform here, really. Right. There needed to be an American ballet school. So Balanchine started the School of American Ballet in 1934. There'd be a lot of other groups that would be formed in the following years before Balanchine and Kirstein started the Ballet Society in 1946, which would become the City Ballet in 1948. So where did people go see Balanchine's company? Most of these performances took place at the City Center Theater on West 55th Street. Very close to Carnegie Hall, just a couple blocks down. That's right. All right, so... Philharmonic Carnegie Hall. That's right. The Metropolitan Opera at the Metropolitan Opera House. On 39th. The New York City Ballet at New York City Center. That's right. So we have one more major player here, and that is Juilliard. Yes. Now, remember conductor Leopold Damrosch, who we talked about, Mm -hmm. who flopped at the Philharmonic and he founded his competitor, the Symphony Society? Well, stick with me here. He had two sons and a daughter, and... All of them were unsurprisingly quite musical. He had a son, Walter, who was also a conductor for the symphony. He had a daughter named Clara, who became a music teacher. And he had another son uh, named Frank Damrosch, who became a music educator, first in Denver, uh, but then back in New York, where he became the director of music for the New York City schools in 1884. Now, Frank was bothered because, like with the ballet, there were too many American music students who had to head off to Europe to study music. The U.S. also needed to have a first-class musical training program. And so in 1905, he founded the New York Institute of Musical Arts and served as its director. And where was their first home? Well, rather glamorously. They were first located in a former mansion that had belonged to the Lennox family. Uh, on 5th Avenue and 12th Street. They would remain there for five years and then move up around Columbia over on Claremont Avenue, there's, up in Morningside Heights. There are so many organizations that are founded in mansions in New York City. Don't you? <laughs> don't, isn't that nice? We, however, were founded in a tenement. <laughs> yes, it's true. And here they, they weren't just teaching performance. They were also teaching composition and conducting. And by the 1950s, they actually expanded into dance and later into theater and other disciplines. But Juilliard, where did the name come from? August Juilliard was a wealthy donor who gave $20 million to start a graduate school for music in 1920. And these two institutions, this Juilliard Graduate School and the undergraduate New York Institute of Musical Art, would join up in 1926 and then merge into one school, the Juilliard School of Music, in 1946. And that same year, the Juilliard String Quartet would be formed. And they remained in the Upper West Side during this period. Okay. All right. So that's where they are at. We so all of our art institutions are scattered all over Manhattan. And you mentioned by 1950s. By then, the New York City Opera had also been created by Mayor LaGuardia, and this company performed at City Center. They were originally called the City Center Opera Company. So th- so those are the main players that mm-hmm. we're going to be dealing with here. So that's the cast of our show here. Let me set the stage now, right? The neighborhood in which Lincoln Center would be planted was a very, very different place 100 years ago. This area north of Columbus Circle and west of Central Park. 
and west of Broadway. You know how Broadway cuts into the avenues, and every time it cuts into avenues, it creates a plaza because it's a diagonal block, That's right? right? Yeah. You know, and we've let Herald Square, Times Square, mm-hmm. Columbus Circle. Well, up here on the Upper West Side, as it crosses Columbus Avenue, it creates a plaza that was once called Empire Square in the mid 19th century. There's even a Empire Hotel there today that keeps that name oh, that's attached right. to the neighborhood. But then at some point in the late 19th century, it was renamed Lincoln Square. Name for Abraham Lincoln, we, I take it? It seems likely, but no one really knows, actually. Hmm. Um, now, the Broadway Theater District stretched up to this area at the beginning of the 19th century. You have, for instance, the Century Opera House between 62nd and 63rd Street on Broadway. You had Daly's 63rd Street Theater. Didn't we talk about that in the Mae West show? Yes. That is that is- where sex premiered? That's where sex premiered. So Mae West debuted a play here. So it was very much in the thriving theatrical scene here. The lobster palaces, these great late night restaurants even stretched up here. Another tie to entertainment, of course, would be at 66th and Broadway, which was where Frank Campbell's funeral home would be. The scene of mass hysteria at the wake of Rudolph Valentino. Right. So by the 1920s, this was kind of an extension of the amusement center of New York. But west of here, west of Broadway, west of Columbus, was actually a tenement district, very similar to Hell's Kitchen and the Tenderloin. In fact, an extension of those neighborhoods up the west side of Manhattan. Right, like Hell's Kitchen just jumped over 57th Street and kept going. You just think of it as one gigantic neighborhood. This neighborhood was named San Juan Hill, as much for the war, the Spanish-American War, as for perhaps a couple more unsavory reasons. San Juan Hill, we haven't really spent much time talking about San Juan Hill. No, the, the neighborhood itself kind of gets lost in the shuffle of history. But in the late 19th century, this was actually a prominent African-American neighborhood. What many considered, quote-unquote, slum back on the day. But, you know, slums meant many different things to people back then. These slum neighborhoods were defined by usually an ethnic character and populated with people who rarely have equal voices in those who write the history. So sometimes they just get the sort of nuances of these neighborhoods don't get written about in the press of the day. But was it a really violent and oh, to, dangerous to, neighborhood? To be sure. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. It was a very overcrowded neighborhood. Okay. Not the most pleasant place to live in New York City. And it was a violent area, actually, due to a lot of gang activity. These different ethnic groups would sort of rub against each other. Irish-American gangs and Italian-American gangs would rub against African-American gangs, especially along the West Side Railroad tracks. Mm -hmm. Over on Death Avenue. Yeah. In fact, some would believe the name San Juan Hill comes actually from these like warlike skirmishes between gangs that would happen over in that area. But, to be fair, in this neighborhood, by the early 20th century, uh, the culture 
would sometimes bleed into the side streets of San Juan Hill. In fact, the famous musical Shuffle Along debuted in 1921 at Daly's at 63rd Street and Broadway. So theaters very near the neighborhood were actually depicting life in the blocks just adjacent to them. Yes, and appealed to people of that neighborhood. Uh In addition, the area also fostered a community of musicians that would venture nearby and eventually up to Harlem and, and play, of course, the burgeoning jazz sound. A musical icon comes from San Juan Hill. Young Thelonious Monk grew up in the streets here and graduated into the Harlem nightclub scene as just a young man. And that's where he honed his talents. So by the early 20th century, this is a mostly African-American neighborhood? Right. Although there's a transition happening, a very interesting one in New York City. It's happening all over in many different neighborhoods. And that is immigrants from places like the Caribbean begin arriving, immigrants from Cuba, and of course, perhaps most notably to New York culture today, the Puerto Ricans arrive in incredibly large numbers after World War II. But it should be said that even at the very start of the 20th century, there was a notable Puerto Rican community here in San Juan Hill. Okay, well, this is all very interesting. Mm -hmm. I'd like to dive in a little deeper, but hold on, because... I was just talking about the Metropolitan Opera, Juilliard. Balanchine, yes. Right. Ballet Russe, Greg. <laughs> and now we're talking about San Juan Hill. How is this all tied together? Two words. Oh, boy. Here it comes. Robert Moses. In fact, I'll add two more words to that. Title one. Urban Renewal? Yes. Now, as we had mentioned in prior podcasts, but recently in our third part of our Bronx series, of which is of quite many parallels, yeah. Moses used this section of the Federal Housing Act of 1949 to basically rewrite New York in his own vision of the future. He decided to clear away poorly developed neighborhoods, urban blighted residential regions, you know, many for perfectly understandable reasons here, because they were just bad tenements, like people were living in very undesirable conditions. But a lot of his decisions were less than noble, you know, broadly eliminating entire tenement districts, whether they were bad places to live or not. Well, we've talked a lot about Robert Moses, Mm -hmm. episode 100, and then Jane Jacobs in episode 200, Mm -hmm. sort of competing visions of the of the urban landscape but it should be said in his defense that he was fighting for the survival of New York City yeah right? he was he, tr- yeah he was trying to keep it modern and vibrant and he was saying look it needs to get up to speed with the times there needs to be it was the automobile age there mm-hmm. needed to be parking there needed to be great highways and we needed to stop the flood of people leaving for the suburbs so with all of this weighing on Moses's mind um, he would be approached by the Metropolitan Opera on occasion uh, throughout this period. They were looking for a home. Yes, they were asking for a home. They had been pretty much jilted, if you want, by uh, John D. Rockefeller Jr., who, who said he was going to build an opera house and decided instead to build Rockefeller Center. Well, Charles Spofford, who was a member of the board of the Metropolitan Opera, beseeched Moses in the 1950s to try again 
Moses had already, by this time, even by the 1940s, Moses has identified San Juan Hill and Lincoln Square mm -hmm. as a target for development. He was even, Tom, this is, give a little color to Robert Moses's personality. He was once quoted as saying, as he was driving past the area, as his chauffeur was driving him past, he remarked to a colleague, quote, someday we're going to do something about that slum. Unquote. Mm -hmm. That sounds like Robert Moses. Yes. So the area was slated for urban renewal, for slum clearance. I should add that it's not just these musical institutions um, that would eventually move in here. Fordham University would also be given dibs to certain areas of land here. So you said it was slated. So this is the Lincoln Square urban renewal area. Mm-hmm. Which is larger than today's Lincoln Center and Fordham because oh, sure. it, it includes some adjacent blocks as well. It's the whole neighborhood of San Juan Hill and those blocks around it that were just deemed unworthy, undesirable. So the Met signed on to this project with Robert Moses in April 1955, but they just needed to get some private funding. Also brought into the discussion at this time was a man named Wallace Harrison. We have called him on many shows. We've called him the in-house architect of the Rockefeller family, for oh, right. he, yes. where he built many things at Rockefeller Center and other properties of the Rockefellers. Well, Harrison had just happened to have been talking to Arthur Houghton who was the chair at the New York Philharmonic. So Houghton was a little bit concerned because by the 1950s, there had been rumblings that Carnegie Hall was going to be torn down. Thankfully, right. that didn't happen. Well, so many places were. Yeah. You know? but So he needed to find a home, too. So it was Houghton bending the ear of Wallace Harrison, who was now talking to Robert Moses, okay. and who so basically said, fine, you know what? Metropolitan Opera... Uh, New York Philharmonic, you can both be here. In this new urban renewal project. Yeah, yeah. But all they needed, of course, was a huge influx of private funding. This, of course, would come in the form of John D. Rockefeller III, uh -huh. uh, whose brother Nelson, who just a few years later would be the governor of New York. So one day in the fall of 1955, in the Poconos Mountains, as you know, as as one does, as a Rockefeller does, as a Rockefeller does, Spofford sat on a bench with John D. Rockefeller III and essentially sold him on the idea of a fine arts center. A campus. A campus of the fine arts. Well, Rockefeller was keen upon it. So he agreed to fund this and eventually became the president of Lincoln Center, Inc., appointing a board of people who would, who would liaise with Robert Moses and the city including members of the Met and the New York Philharmonic. But you mentioned the Philharmonic and the opera. So where did the ballet come in? Well, it came in during a brainstorming session that basically blew this idea out into almost the form that it is today. Houghton actually said, quote, We had some wonderful, extravagant brainstorming sessions. We would sit around and say, well, we're going to have the opera and we're going to have the Philharmonic. Why not have the ballet? And why not have theater? And why not have this? And why not have that? that? You know, they even considered having an art museum, but nixed it because, of course, New York had quite an abundance of art museums at that time, although many of the structures in Lincoln Center today have great works of art incorporated in the design. By the way, 1957, you know who else would jump on that is, of course, the Juilliard School of Music would then climb aboard 
Each institution would have its own home built using the finest architects of the day. Parallel to the development of Columbus Circle in the 1950s, because this was also the time of Moses and his pet project, the Colosseum, and a whole re-envisioning of the West Side. That all sounds lovely, but... That also means it's the end of San Juan Hill, this entire neighborhood. Right. That's the sort of minor key refrain underneath mm-hmm. all of this celebration is the fact that you would have to displace a population of 6,000 to 7,000 families. To be fair, this redevelopment had already begun in the late 1940s with a public housing project that's still there today behind Lincoln Center, further west of Lincoln Center, called the Amsterdam Houses. But there was a weird symbolism here. The idea of uprooting a population that who were living there, that was their homes, for a non-residential art center, ostensibly for all, but realistically, at least at the very first, containing the amusements for wealthier audiences. Did the residents fight back in any way? Were they, were they vocal in their opposition? Absolutely. I mean, they picketed City Hall. They loudly criticized Moses's plans in the press, in particular, Moses's idea of giving each family just $400 on average to relocate to another place. because they couldn't even get a ticket to the opera today for that. <laughs> no. That's about $3,500 today. But imagine your whole family, mm-hmm. you know. Unfortunately, they would lose the fight. They would all have to move away over the course of three years. And the area would be ready for the groundbreaking in spring of 1959. But before the halls of Lincoln Center could be lifted up, a curious temporary visitor would enter the neighborhood, enshrining it in cinematic history. We will tell you that West Side story and give you a tour of the modern campus after the commercial break. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, The Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery+. Plus. Okay, Greg, so I've been kind of like dangling this West Side Story (laughs) teaser, this trailer in front of you this entire time. Well, it's part of the legacy. It's part of the legend. The lore. Of Lincoln Center. So I thought it made sense to highlight it a little bit and maybe dispel a myth or two. 
Well, West Side Story, the musical, premiered in 1957 on Broadway, and it told this updated version of Romeo and Juliet. It was this familiar tale, but it was told through the lens of a hot topic of the day, namely teenage delinquency and gangs. In this case, two gangs, the Jets, who were the quote-unquote Americans, versus the Sharks, who were the Puerto Rican gang. And it tells a story of a love story that crossed these gang borders between Tony, who was a former Jet, and Maria, who was the sister of Bernardo, who was the leader of the Sharks. I'm sure that this is a tale that is familiar <laughs> with many of our listeners. I think we so, don't really yeah. need to get into the intricacies of, I do, you know, Anita and then the I, whole thing. I do think, however, many people have performed it in their high schools. <laughs> have you? It was too edgy for my high school. We did oh. Bye Bye Birdie. Okay. <laughs> Put on a happy face. Yes. The story of the making of the show is fascinating, and I, I would recommend that anybody really dive into it. In fact, I read a book that came out this year in 2016 called A Place for Us, West Side Story and New York by Julia Folks. It's a fascinating tale of the creative collaboration between Leonard Bernstein and Jerome Robbins and Arthur Lawrence, and then later Stephen Sondheim, to create the musical that would open at the Winter Garden Theater in New York on September 26, 1957. It's a fascinating story because this group of people, especially Robbins and Bernstein and Arthur Lawrence had been talking about creating this musical since 1947, and it wouldn't open on Broadway until 1957, so really a decade in the making of this show as they struggled to understand how to tackle such a serious topic, you know, in a Broadway musical. So was it specifically set in San Juan Hill, in this neighborhood that was a Puerto Rican neighborhood by the 1950s? Well... Interestingly, they originally set this story down in the Lower East Side. It was going to be Mm. the tale between Italian and Jewish gangs who were fighting Mm. out over their turf. And they wanted to call it East Side Story. Oh, interesting. But by the mid-1950s, this no longer even seemed relevant. That was like some relic of their parents' generation. You know, by the mid-1950s, the Jews and Italians had moved out of the Lower East Side. So they looked for something more relevant. And by the mid-50s, there were lots of articles in the paper about juvenile delinquency and these teenage gangs. And also racism that newly arrived Puerto Ricans were facing in the United States. So these were all kind of hot topics of the time pulled together into a show that would open in in 1957. And it was clearly a hit with this talent roster. Yes, it um, enjoyed 732 performances at the Winter Garden. It closed in June of 1959 and then went on tour, coming back to New York and reopening at the Winter Garden in 1960. And it was also a hit in London. However, many people took issues with certain aspects of the show, especially the portrayal of Puerto Ricans. And if you look just at the lyrics of the hit song, America, you'll understand why. You know, they're talking about an island of tropical diseases Mm. and really talking about Puerto Rico in very demeaning terms. And to be fair, street gangs just don't dance that well. So it's not a big surprise then that immediately they were talking about making this into a movie. 
And so Jerome Robbins, along with his co-director, Robert Wise, scouted out you know, locations all over the city. They visited neighborhoods. They took photos, um, shots through fences and along sidewalks and basketball courts, balconies. You know, they, they took shots of exhaust fans on rooftops that would be incorporated later into sets, if you think about mm-hmm. America, mm-hmm. which takes place on a rooftop. But they were still debating how to really turn this into a movie musical. Most American musicals, especially films, were comedies. So it was going to be kind of a stretch to show people finger-snapping gang members. So how do they incorporate real-life New York City into the movie? Because there, there are scenes of the New York City streets in the right. movie. And the, what, what they did is they kind of set the mood in the prologue by showing a sort of abstract, you know, vertical lines while they played the overture. And those lines then morph into the skyline of Lower Manhattan. So they sort of like take you into this slightly abstracted place. And then during the opening number, the prologue, as you hear the gang snapping their fingers, there's amazing, unforgettable aerial footage over New York. You pass over City Hall, the newly opened United Nations, the Empire State Building, uh, the George Washington Bridge, Stytown, Columbia. Then zoom in on a playground where the jets are snapping their fingers. Mm-hmm. So was that shot in San Juan Hill, uh, uh, on the spot of Lincoln Center? Well, that entire opening number was shot on location. It's really the biggest part of the film that's shot in New York City. The rest of it was shot in Hollywood on a soundstage. But that opening number was shot on two places. One on the Upper East Side on 110th Street between 1st and 2nd Avenue, and the other location was West 68th Street between West End and Amsterdam. And what they did in that opening number is really mesh the two together. So it it becomes very difficult to actually spot which parts were (laughs) shot on 110th Street and which parts were down on 68th Street. But these blocks were being slotted for demolition. And in fact, all of the area of today's Lincoln Center had already been demolished. But this block, West 68th Street, was actually a block west of Lincoln Center and two blocks north of it. So I find it interesting that so often, you know, when when telling this story, we say, well, before they ripped down the neighborhood to build Lincoln Center, they shot West Side Story here. And that's not exactly true because the whole area of today's Lincoln Center for the performing arts was actually located a block east and south of 68th Street, which was used for West Side Story. But it's important to mention this in the grander story of Lincoln Center, both because, A, it does play a sort of unusual coda to the end of the neighborhood of San Juan Hill, because this was filmed on a street that was then slated to be demolished. But then secondly, the people who were involved with West Side Story, many of them would then go on to work and be profound influences on Lincoln Center. Right, of course. Leonard Bernstein, who would continue with the New York Philharmonic at Lincoln Center. Jerome Robbins, who would continue at the City Ballet. But there's a third thing that Mm -hmm. should be mentioned, which is that story of race and a changing neighborhood Mm -hmm. and and the meta-story of what Robert Moses was even doing in clearing away all of these slums and how that affected immigrant populations that were coming into the city. And the fact that that was playing out on the ground 
but also on the stage and then on the screen mm-hmm. seems very appropriate, <laughs> you know? Well, there's even one scene in the movie early on that's set in rubble, basically, that had buildings that had been knocked down already. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I recommend viewing that opening scene again. You'll be able to see a lot of the old boarded up tenements and boarded up buildings on 68th Street. So look closely in the background as they're dancing around. Sometimes they're actually up on 110th Street, especially when they're on the playground and Mm -hmm. they're on the seesaw that's up on 110th. But when they're kind of dancing down the street and you see boarded up windows behind you, that's because the blocks just south of there had already been demolished. And Jerome Robbins, you know, was able to negotiate that they just hold off for a little bit to Mm -hmm. allow for the filming here. And indeed, they do race over at one part and they climb up on a hill of rubble. And behind them, you see blocks of demolished tenements. And I have to call out this this wonderful website called Pop Spots NYC. That's P-O-P-SpotsNYC.com by Bob Egan. He goes through exhaustively, shot by shot, in that opening scene, identifying which shots were at 110th Street and which shots were down on 68th Street. He did an incredible amount of research on this. And I know we can't spend too much time on West Side Story, but I would also encourage people to compare the lyrics of the Broadway show versus the film because of the criticism that I said that they faced before, people taking issue with suggestions that Puerto Rico was this island of tropical diseases and that, you know, nobody really wanted to live there. They did change the lyrics for the film. They even recast the song entirely, so it becomes a song that is much more about the racial discrimination that is faced by immigrants to the U.S. It's, it's a fascinating difference. Just You can even on Spotify, you can listen to those two versions back-to-back, and you'll hear those changes. The film opened on October 18th, 1961. It was a huge hit, won 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture. All right, so you said 1961. That's right. The groundbreaking for Lincoln Center actually began in 1959, but because this is multiple structures, Mm -hmm. they're all opening at different periods of times, and they're all very complex buildings here. So instead of just doing a chronological story of how the buildings cropped up, I thought I would end our tale of Lincoln Center on a tour of the buildings themselves and give little historical tidbits as we go. Okay, put so, on your comfortable walking shoes. Comfortable. It's not that big, but you you know you you may want to you know still wear comfortable shoes. So the the main plaza of Lincoln Center involves three grand structures of travertine facades made by three different architects and housing three major performing art institutions. But we're going to start with perhaps the most recognizable feature of Lincoln Center, and that would be the fountain, the Revson Fountain, um, named for the founder of Revlon Cosmetics, Charles Revson. It was constructed in 1964, designed by Philip Johnson, he of the Seagram's Building and the New York State Pavilion out in World's Fair, which was just opening as this fountain was being turned on. Was being revved up. Revved up. Revved Revved up. up. Yeah. 
In 2009, they redesigned the fountain so that now it features a granite ring. The fountains themselves, its waters, uh, were designed by the makers of the Bellagio fountains in Las Vegas. 353 water nozzles at full capacity, jettisoning over 16,000 gallons of water a minute. Still, we're talking about the jets. Again, the jets. No sharks. Well, maybe there is one. I don't know. I haven't haven't been in recently. So why don't we start with the the three major players here. The building on your left. So if you're facing into the plaza, right? Okay, I'm facing west. And you have the three buildings in front of you, Mm -hmm. like left, in front of you, and the right. We're going to start with the one on the left, the southern building. This is the New York State Theater. Today, the David H. Coke Theater. Uh, They changed the name because he gave $100 million to renovate and operate it. This is the home of dance, in Lincoln Center, specifically the New York City Ballet. And this was also designed by Philip Johnson with wide marble stairways and all this modern art. It's said to look like a gigantic jewelry box by some. In fact, didn't he work with Balanchine in developing the structure to make it seem like this jewel oh, box yeah. when you walk inside? I mean, they um, all of these buildings have the influence of the musicians and the music directors themselves. All, almost all of these buildings do. Probably the most popular show that is hosted at the David Koch Theater is, of course, The Nutcracker, the warm holiday show with Balanchine's choreography to Tchaikovsky. This production actually debuted at City Center in 1954, but its identity is intimately tied here with Lincoln Center, and it is performed every single year, and it's, and it's one of the hottest tickets in town. All right, let's leave the ballet and let's head to the opera. Yeah, but before we get to the opera, between the ballet and the opera is a plaza called Damrosh Park, named for the Damroshes, which Ah, you had mentioned early in the show. Very musical family. And is the home throughout the year to like live outdoor shows and the new home of New York Fashion Week. And very appropriate because it is, in fact, right next to the Metropolitan Opera. This building was designed by Wallace Harrison, it hosts one of the most sophisticated stages in the world. Now, you remember the old Met and how there was virtually no backstage? Right, or side wings or any room for scenery. Yeah. Well, this, because they put on such elaborate state-of-the-art productions, they have many shows that rotate you know, throughout the week, rotate daily. They, they need a colossal backstage. In fact, the audience area is only one-third of the total space. That two-thirds of it is that huge backstage area and that large stage. Um, It has some of the most attractive and exciting shows, I think, in the United States. And, you know, I made a crack earlier about uh, the expensive tickets. It should also be noted that that they raffle off $25 same-day seats as well, and those are some of the best seats in the house. So... The opera is actually affordable to all New Yorkers. Its official opening was in September of 1966, so 50 years ago this year, with a production of Antony and Cleopatra featuring Leontine Price. Her costume is even featured on one of the landings inside the Met Opera. We saw that yesterday. Mm -hmm. Not only was the president's wife, Lady Bird Johnson, in attendance to this first show, but so too, Tom, was Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos from the Philippines. I'm sure she was admiring their shoes. (laughs) She wore wonderful shoes that evening. 
Well, that was a fabulous stop at the opera. Can mm-hmm. we keep moving over to Philharmonic Hall? Yes, we are now, or they call it today David Geffen Hall. This is the home of the Philharmonic. Of course, this was the first building to open in the entire campus on September 23rd, 1962 with Bernstein and the New York Philharmonic. The building was designed by Max Abramovich, and there were some acclaimed technical sound producers for the interiors. But haven't there been issues around acoustics in that hall? Oh, famously. It's almost like there were too many cooks in the kitchen. They kept adding things, and Bernstein was kind of horrified that first opening night. Uh, He didn't like the sound at all. Because the acoustics sounded different once there was a full audience in the Mm -hmm, hall. Right. It would take a philanthropist and sound engineer named Avery Fisher to donate $10.5 million to redo the hall. And as gratitude, they named it after him for a very long period of time until David Geffen came along. They're both, by the way, Avery Fisher and David Geffen are both Brooklyn boys. Geffen, of course, course worked in music but he's a um, record and film producer he gave a hundred million dollars and to then do another renovation which has not yet been done but it's slated to be done in the coming years. Right. Now, before we move on, I, I just have to mention something kind of interesting. That these are performing arts institutions mm-hmm. that are built on top of parking garages and the subway. There's a subway station right underneath. Yeah, that's right. Um That can't be great for acoustics, can it? (laughs) Well, this is apparently one of the most insulated subway stations in all of New York City so that you can't hear anything or even a vibration. Okay, so we're out of Philharmonic Hall, but there is more to the campus. Right. There's almost three different sections. So this is all the first section. Okay. The second section is another group of institutions that are in a plaza between the Opera House and David Geffen Hall. Among these institutions is one that we pretty much go to every month for research and information, and that's the New York Public Library of Performing Arts. That building opened in 1965. It is the greatest collection of research materials related to the arts, complete recordings of Broadway shows, which have closed since 1970. Amazing. So on top of that, they are next to three spectacular stages that are also here for plays and for musicals. The biggest one, Vivian Beaumont Theater, which was designed by Eero Saarinen, who did the TWA terminal out in JFK and the St. Louis Arch. This opened in October of 1965 with the show Danton's Death, featuring actor James Earl Jones. And the Vivian Beaumont is a Broadway stage, right? Even though it's right. outside this zone that we think of mm-hmm. as Broadway. It's a huge auditorium inside, but it's different than other stages because it has what's called a thrust stage. Right. meaning that It comes it's, out into the audience. Yeah, it's an immersive experience. And there are two other stages here, one for off-Broadway called the Mitzi Newhouse and a new one for off-off-Broadway, seating under 200 people, called the Claire Tau. Okay, so that's the second section of Lincoln Center. What is this third section you were talking about? Well, I would I would say it's the educational center. Across 65th Street is the home of Juilliard. Juilliard School and the famed Alice Tully Hall, which just received a spectacular 
renovation. It is so beautiful. In addition, right next to it is the Samuel B. and David Rose building, which was a fairly new addition to Lincoln Center, being built only in 1990. And that's the home for the School of American Ballet and the student dorms for Juilliard. Then, of course, also over there is the Walter Reed Theater, for there's also film now involved in Lincoln Center. And there are actually small theaters across the street, but the Walter Reed Theater, named for Walter Reed, who was a theatrical operator of he owned a string of New Jersey theaters. Oh. They host the New York Film Festival every year. Now, you you mentioned Rose, the Rose family, because then they also opened up the Rose Hall down at the Time Warner Center. Oh, right, right. So there's another interesting, somewhat new addition to the roster of institutions, and that, of course, is jazz. And the jazz at Lincoln Center is down in Columbus Circle, the Time Warner Center. And it began in 1987, although didn't move there until of course, 2004. So that is a whirlwind tour of Lincoln Center. Glad I put on those sensible shoes. <laughs> uh, but what we would strongly recommend is that you download the Lincoln Center app. If you go to the App Store, you'll see that there's an official Lincoln Center tour app where they'll walk you around. Uh, it's an audio tour. Oh, yeah, it's wonderful. I actually did it yesterday. It's about 45 minutes total. They have music and videos. It's a really immersive experience, and you don't have to pay a dime for it. But, of course, to really enjoy Lincoln Center, you've got to go into some of these stages. So there is a walking tour that you can take. And we took a tour yesterday. It was fantastic. Fantastic, because you get to, if possible, walk inside the theaters and see them sometimes during rehearsals. Uh, but then, of course, you know, check out the incredible roster of shows, the films, the dance. We'd, I didn't even mention the Chamber Music Society, who often has shows at Alice Tully Hall, which are some of the finest music that you can hear in New York. Also, be sure to swing by the David Rubenstein Atrium at Lincoln Center, which is between 62nd and 63rd Street on Broadway. There you can pick up same-day reduced-price tickets, get great deals to the opera, to dance, to the Philharmonic, and even see a free performance. Also, a big thank you to our friend Mark Murtaugh over at the Juilliard School for all of his help. Please visit our blog, BarryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have many pictures of the construction of Lincoln Center, uh, a few of old San Juan Hill, and uh, many specific and glorious pictures of some of the buildings that are on the Lincoln Center campus. Along with a link to that article I was talking about, about the filming locations of West Side Story. That's BoweryBoysHistory.com. And swing over to patreon.com slash Boys, where you can join your fellow Bowery Boys listeners in supporting the show. It's because of the support that we've received through our patrons uh, that we've been able to do a new show every two weeks. And we put up special thank yous on Patreon to our patrons. Uh, this show's going live on December 9th, 2016. If you're mm -hmm. listening to this around that period, we have two live events. One at the Tenement Museum, a trivia night, uh, which is Wednesday, December 14th. And then an event at the Green Space that will also feature the Museum of the City of New York and WNYC. And that'll be on Thursday, December 15th. So that's the Tenement Museum on Wednesday night and the Green Space at WNYC on Thursday night, the 14th and 15th of December. You can see more about those things on our website, 
or go to the Tenement Museum or the Green Space websites to get tickets. And finally, since it is the holidays, we must plug our book, The Bowery Boys Adventures in Old New York, because it makes a marvelous gift for Under the Tree. If you have any uh, loved ones out there who live in New York or who are perhaps very, very far away from New York, but would like to experience the history, uh, we think that they would love it. So you can get that at your local bookstore, at Amazon, or at Barnes & Noble. Thank you so much for joining us on this history of West Side Story and the creation of Lincoln Center. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.